Another question that was raised was this what was mentioned was the um, being asked why um, why you, you read spiritual books and meditated and paid attention to spiritual matters and uh, and your response being well sometimes life is so intolerably miserable or you, you're suffering so much that that you feel you've got to do something and this is what you do um, to come back to yourself or to remember yourself and you thought that was a rather depressing motivation for attending to spiritual matters well one thing I can say about that is that you're not alone even 2,500 years ago, the Buddha was talking about different motivations for for seeking the way, and there are some people who, uh, believe it or not, actually seek a path of practice because they're so happy that they uh, they go inquiring into the path for liberation. And I can't relate to that myself, but I have the Buddha said there are such people. His right hand man, Sariputta, was such a person, and. You know, just a few words, a few sentences, and you know he was blissed out. You know, and within no time at all, the whole thing was settled, and he was free. <coughs> um, his left-hand man, Venerable Moggallana, um, it took him several days before he settled the matter, and his path of practice was referred to as, as a path of practice characterized by suffering or dukkha, patipati vimuti, or liberation realized through an inquiry into into suffering. The other one is Sukha Patipati Vimuti, uh, liberation arrived at through an inquiry into or associated with lots of pleasure. So you, you know you're not alone, and um, and there's no reason why, <laughs> you, from the Buddhist perspective, anyway, you should consider it as any sort of invalid motivation. Uh, if you find it a depressing motivation, um, well, I would you know I would suggest looking at the assumptions you have about about these things that um, you know surely what matters what matters is that we do feel there is a place within ourselves that we can go to (coughs) and there are external resources that help take us there Personally, I don't have a, a very um, well-developed relationship with books, but uh, to me, people are much better. I find people as a marvelous trigger, and and um, and always have done. That um, just to to have a discussion with somebody uh, when you've lost perspective, when I've lost perspective, and to have a discussion with somebody about having lost perspective, but when that somebody actually knows how to really listen and has not, has not um, got an opinion about losing or finding perspective. They just share the interest in reality that, that one is looking for. And so for me such a resource is, 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 has always been a, a great and precious um, asset, if I can use that <coughs> word, to, to um, 
remind me or take me back to where I really need to be, which is see, you know balanced, seeing things in perspective, and remembering not to get lost in the the uh, experiences that I'm having. But whatever it is, whether it's it's people um, or books, um, tapes, reflections. These outer resources, um, if we engage them and they remind us of another dimension, then surely that's all that matters. The struggle so often is the case that we we forget that there's many dimensions to experience, there's many dimensions to our lives. And and we, we think the fact that that we're having a bad time and or you know we're feeling disappointed or sad or betrayed or lost confused um, and all we can see is failure all we can feel is failure yeah. and all the voices we have in our heads are you know you deserve it anyway because you're so weak you were just you were just kidding yourself anyway and kidding other people, you know, putting up this front of being interested in spirituality or being together. You know. Our minds get possessed with such thoughts and our hearts are full of the same feeling of sadness and and there can be a perception of it's just gonna always be this way. And that's 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 something to do with the, um, the the concept that people have of eternal hell. When we, when the heart contracts and the mind narrows, and we get stuck, we get stuck like a like an old record just going round and round in the same groove. It just it just gets caught and doesn't move on. Doesn't move on. It just gets stuck and goes round and round. When we get into that state. There is the perception of it's always going to be this way. Now we don't have that feeling when, you know, when you you know you're sunning yourself on the rocks, you know, on a gorgeous early autumn, splendid day, you know, as wonderful as this country can be at this time of year when the sun is shining and and your health is good and the company is good and you're not lost in you know the perception that it's always going to be absolutely marvelous you know there's there's a certain sense of well it's nice got last but we know you know it's a, you know but when we get caught in negativity there can be a sense of it's always going to be this. I'm never, I've never basically I've never known anything else I was just kidding myself I, you know on this level I've always been a slob and and I always feel I'm going to be this way and that's that's the delusion. That's the con. And in the beginning of our spiritual effort, we don't know that it's a con. It's um, like any other con in life. You know, the, the con of you know certain salesmen. You know, the first time you buy, you buy a car, or or you know you, you're doing some housework, and you know. You look up in the yellow pages, and you get conned by some some cowboy carpenter, and and you know, the first time you do that, well, you know, okay, I was conned. 
the thing is not to get too heavy on ourselves. You know, just say, okay, well, I won't do that again. And that is that's that's very much the case with our inner work that we get conned, we get fooled into thinking that this perception of it's always going to be this way actually is like that and we lose contact with that precious sense of doubt that really is the other side of faith we so often think that faith is you know radiant and wonderful and always believing in something good that's not the case at all you know, the other side of faith, the back of faith, if you like. It's just we've got a front and the back of the hand. Faith has got a back as well. It's doubt, and they go together. And there's a force there. The great doubt that undermines the assumptions we have about reality. Mm. We lose touch with that great doubt, that precious doubt. As well as, of course, we lose, we've obviously lost touch with the radiance of faith. Mm. And we just assume the way it appears is real. You know, it stinks basically. Life stinks. I stink, and and so yeah. I don't see that as a depressing myself. I don't see that as a depressing motivation. I don't really care what the motivation is myself. <coughs> Whatever the motivation to actually pick up something that reminds us, this is only one perspective. This is a limited perspective. Perfectly valid. Every perspective is perfectly valid. Yeah. Even a miserable, depressed perspective is perfectly valid. It's still a miserable, <coughs> depressed perspective. But it's a valid, miserable, depressed perspective. But what's so important is we remember it's only one perspective. And there are other perspectives. And, and so to pick up a book that reminds us, or to listen to a tape that reminds us, or to meet somebody for a conversation that reminds us, you know, this is relative. This is not an ultimate reality. It really, really does feel this way. As I've said so many times before, the, the image that works so well for me is a mirage when you're crossing a desert. And as I don't know whether any of you have done, but I have in Australia, you can be out in the desert and you can see a mirage and it really, really looks like water. And you really, really feel thirsty. There's no question about the experience of being thirsty. There's no question about the apparent nature of what you can see there looking like water. The uninformed response to that is you know you, you, you feel convinced that you, this is going to be quenched in a minute and, and the natural consequence is huge disappointment it's an apparent reality it's created by yeah. illusion of light and reflecting on the sand well so it is with the apparent reality of our depressed miserable state that whatever the stimulus and there's certainly plenty of stimulus around that can make us feel miserable You'll go back into the go back into the pit or, or whatever. Mm. Mm. The pit may be temporary, but I'm going to go back there. Mm-hmm. 
sure. Hmm. Yeah, and that's why the skill is agility of attention, not um, which realm you happen to be passing through. That's why in the meditation I, I said um, it's the awareness that's the point, <coughs> not what's passing through the awareness. And um, <coughs> no judgment in the fact that we lose that appreciation. No judgment in that at all. Or if there is judgment, then you know what is so important is that we see the judging as it's happening. If when we fall into hell, as has happened so many times and as will happen still, if we can, when we're in hell, (coughs) if we can quietly, if we can quietly on our own see if we can not just hear the thought, although that might be the indicator, but feel the feeling of being judged for being in hell, as if somebody condemned us and put us there. I deserve this, or I'm a failure because I'm here, or this is the place I should be and I always will be here. Whatever. The, the noises might be and they can be really really sick but if we can if we can be there for them and really consider the way we relate to them as soon as I know the first time I started noticing how compulsively judging my mind was, what I was aware of was that I was very judgmental of this compulsive tendency. Yeah, I was so caught in the game. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be judging this. I, I, you know, in hell, you know, I, I am still accurately. I still have accurate memory of. Of, of, of the, the deepest pit of hell that I've ever been into and 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 uh, I can remember the observing this tendency to judge it yeah. I'm a failure for being here and the feeling of that not just the idea of it the idea is an indicator but the feeling of it I failed I'm wrong because I'm suffering so badly but to somehow be interested in the relationship with that experience. And that's why, that's why the Buddha went over and over and over and over and over and over again about mindfulness as the way. Mindfulness, not what we're being mindful, but mindfulness itself, awareness itself, is the way. The quality of non-judgmental here and now awareness, if we work on this, if this is what we work on, in the moment, here and now, in this moment, here and now, really consciously appreciating the power of here and now judgment-free awareness, then when the suffering arises, or when we find ourselves in the pit of suffering, there's a chance we'll remember. Sooner or later it will happen. 
sooner or later, even when we're in hell, and there's this judging is going on, we'll remember what we're talking about now, and there'll be the, I trust, because I know you're interested, there'll be the, instead of the being caught in the game of saying, I shouldn't be judging, there'll just be a, a, an interest in, say, judging. And as soon as we see it, that's it. As soon as we see it, then we're not possessed by it. As soon as we feel it, as it is, as it's happening, then we're not defined by it. And even if it's only a little shift in increased capacity to receive the present moment, it'll count. And then we'll remember again the radiance of faith. We may not spring out of hell, but the radiance of faith will support us in hell. And the other side of, of the faith, which I mentioned a minute ago, the doubt, <coughs> yeah, will be strengthened. I say, oh yeah, it really does appear this way, but maybe it's not like this. It really does appear like I'm damned. Eternally damned. It really, really feels like that. But there'll be another dimension. And I'll be saying, well, yeah, it does really appear like that. But the last time I saw that mirage and I ran after it thinking I was going to get my thirst quenched, it just didn't work. And there'll be that knowledge, that wisdom will be there, born out of having investigated, having born with the suffering, with here and now judgment-free awareness. Mm. So, I don't know, you know, I don't think about when transmigrating through the various realms of heaven and hell and everything in between, when it's going to end. Um, I don't dwell on such thoughts, but what I do dwell on is how can I be more agile? How can I flow through these more? Not, don't try to go to heaven. <laughs> we, you know, there's great Buddhist stories about heaven. You know, you can get born in heaven according to the Buddhist teachings. And uh, I don't know, you've probably been there for eons. But look what happened. <laughs> you came back again. And one of the things that they say about you know, angels in heaven, when angels are about, <laughs> this is quite funny, when angels are about to descend... Because you can be up there for eons, according to Buddhist mythology. When you're about to descend to go down to a human realm or an animal realm, I don't know whether you can take a direct trip down to hell from heaven, I don't think so. But anyway, you can descend to a human or animal realm. What starts to happen is you develop body odour. And the other celestial beings, they just distance themselves from you. (laughs) Because most celestial beings, so long as they're kind of really going through their angel thing, they don't have any body odour. They're just lovely, and uh, but then once the body, once you know your time, your good karma is wearing out. Basically, you know you're, you're getting ready to go down. You develop body odor, and uh, it's a sign, <laughs> and you got to go down again. Uh, uh, so that's what happens if you go to heaven. I mean, eventually you'll come down again. In most cases, I mean, there are a few apparently rare cases where you just go out. For <coughs> but I wouldn't dwell on that. <laughs> so. And there was another comment from James that um, 
to say something a little bit more. I mean, I feel like I'm, you know, if I heard your question or your comment, James, I, you know, I feel like, um, you know, we're talking about what you were talking about, which is that uh, attending to reality is is so nourishing of a place that actually sustains us in a way that matters much more than anything else. You know, um, we don't have conversations like this every day with people who share something as we share. I don't, anyway. You might think I do, because I live in a monastery. You might think that you know we talk about real matters all the time. We don't. You know, right now we're talking about you know, whether we're going to have porcelain or plastic or ceramic lights in the new retreat house. You know, <laughs> you know it's, not, it's not this quality of discussion. And it actually is not as important as this. It's got its place. But this matters much more. You know, it really doesn't matter whether you have plastic or porcelain or ceramic or metal lighting in the... Not ultimately. I mean, I do get excited about it, and I do feel enthusiastic about it, and I'm pleased Anna gave me a nice contact in Edinburgh to go and look at the lighting shop, which Jim and I are going to tomorrow. Um, but that's not, that's not, that doesn't really matter. And I know I've talked about this many times before, but I, I feel that it's worth saying again that it's important if we um, consider for ourselves for ourselves, so that we know for ourselves what are my important matters and what do I do that addresses them. Because as James was saying, you know, some of you were up at Ben Lyon a couple of weeks ago sitting silently together and I don't know if you were silent for a week or whether you had some discussion as well, but the, the quality of community that I imagine you're referring to has got a certain um, relevance to it that when we see it contrasted up against a lot of the rest of our life I think one can say it's precious and that's why you know, Buddhists talk about the three gems the three jewels Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha they're called jewels because they're precious the Buddha is precious to us as a teacher, as a manifestation, as <clears throat> as an ex- as an actual human being who lives in this world and realized for themselves this freedom from any obstruction to relationship with anything. The Buddha realized the state of perfect, unobstructed relationship with everything, and not a, it wasn't a realization that he could regress from. And that that is a possibility is is an inspiration. It's something that that, that is precious that we can we can work towards, <clears throat> can inspire and uplift us. And the Dhamma is precious, both in the sense of the Dhamma as teachings that we were just talking about, supports, guides, friends, teachings, books that help guide us even guide us towards actually a more accurate receptivity of that which is utterly intolerable as Master Shudwa said our our practice is to endure the unendurable how do we endure the unendurable how do we do that how do we endure the unendurable 
That's the question. And Master Hua was a, one of the great meditation teachers of, of this era. That was his basically. That was his message. That's what we have to learn: how to endure the unendurable. And what we do when you endure the unendurable is we realize there's a deeper perspective. There's another perspective on that which was apparently unendurable. But on the level that we're at, it appears unendurable and we've got to endure it. We've got to meet it with endurance. And how do we do that? Dhamma helps us do that. Whether it's Dhamma friends or Dhamma Dhamma occasional Dhamma conversations or Dhamma books or Dhamma born out of silence, Dhamma is what takes us to the capacity to endure the unendurable where we remember, reconnect with another perspective which shows us this is not an ultimate condition. Dhamma is precious. And Sangha is precious. Sangha is certainly the, the principle of spiritual community where there is a communing, there is a coming together, there is a, a resonance of human beings. Uh, the Buddha as I said, has the, has a relevance to us. The Dhamma has a relevance to us. The relevance of Sangha, it seems to me, is is the perception that we're not alone in this. You know, when we're suffering, or if we're whether our suffering is gross and we feel deeply threatened, deeply alone, and unable. Or whether it's a, a subtle form of suffering where, where we're in touch with the heart's quiet but focused longing to know <coughs> what's true. That's not a gross, agonizing suffering, but there is a there is a deep and meaningful, deep and significant pain in that. And so whatever our human experience may be of being limited in our lives, to have the appreciation that we're not alone in that is very, very important. And that's, a, 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 for me, a, a profoundly important aspect of the, the preciousness of Sangha of actually being together with people, others who share this recognition of relevance. And I, I know the word is overused these days a lot, but you know, this, this, uh, the, the nourishment that can be experienced, whether in silence, whether in dialogue uh, with others, um, I don't think there's any substitute for it. Yeah. In the Christian tradition, is you know, it says, "Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there." You now, if we see beyond the the conventional understanding of that and consider that that the speaker of that uh, is the is a um, a symbol for compassion, selflessness, compassionate love, where two or three are gathered together in selflessness. Yeah. Where two or three, where there's a group where we actually meet beyond personality, beyond the level of you know gossip and chatting and me promoting myself and 
you know, and comparing myself to you and you promoting or comparing yourself to me and, you know, beyond that level, which certainly is, is superficial, beyond that, if we meet, yeah. when two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there, and I, there's a force, there's a, there's a resonance, it's struck up, which is above and beyond the significance of the two, or the more, or the gathering. And I often um, remember the, 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 the uh, in music, in <coughs> Again, an image which you've heard me mention before. You, you strike two notes, and if, if it's the right two notes, there's, there's a harmonic. That harmonic, you know, what is it? It's not the same as those two notes. But it's not independent from those two notes. Yeah. Or it's the same when, you know, when a couple come together in love and a child is born. That child is, is not separate, but it is separate. And it's an expression of a union. And yet it's greater than the individuals. And so it is with, with spiritual community. If we can find our way, our ways, and each of us find our own ways to, to grapple and deal with and meet and ultimately hopefully receive our, obsession with, our obsessions with individuality and, and see beyond ourselves find a way beyond our commitment to self, me and my way, and we can meet in that place, then we commune. We come together in spirit. And there's something profoundly precious about that. I, I find there's, um, there's a pleasure, there's an actual physical pleasure in that, a, a, a you know, bodily feeling of pleasure to be in such a way of being with, together. And there's also... There's also an intelligence, which can even be intoxicating. I find is in that if there's a, if there is such a resonance, if there is such a meeting of hearts of being, there's a, there's an understanding that starts to emerge. And I know we had a retreat. You know, in, in the, many of you were on retreat in August at, at the monastery, and for me it was just the, it was such a lovely time. I, I look back at the summer, and that was the highlight of the summer that week when. When uh, whatever how many eighteen of you were were together, and it wasn't because I was doing such good meditations, <laughs> not at all. But it was because we were. I think I believe I have no empirical proof of this, but my conviction is it was because we were together in a place that was beyond ourselves, and and that's again is this understanding can come is born out of that sort of meeting. Yeah, that spiritual community. And so, yeah, those are my reflections on why it is so um, so precious to be able to come together in, in such a way. So thank you very much for your attention this evening.